parfait. After a pretty uneventful clash between England and Netherlands, the Republic of Ireland in action today, take on Egypt, looking to take advantage of this, uh, well, the dropping points from the other two. A win will put us in a very, very nice position heading into the game against Netherlands. Turlock, I think you're going to take us through this game in, in as much detail as possible. Yeah, the notorious Ireland-Egypt game of 1990s kind of gone down in legend for a variety of reasons which we'll get to, but uh, just to, I suppose, deal with it as, as we encountered it at the time. Ahead of the game, the Egyptian manager, El Ghadari, was particularly worried about Ray Houghton, um, which, if you saw Ireland's qualifying campaign, be well justified, because Houghton was absolutely outstanding, but he, he hadn't really, I think he was carrying a pelvic injury, hadn't really turned it on against England. Um, Jack Charlton had done a little bit of homework to the extent that he was capable of name-checking the really dangerous Egyptian players, which was, and getting their names right, apparently. So it was, it was Yakan Elgani and obviously Hassan Hassan, who he was worried about. The day before the game, I'm, I'm sorry to inflict the ongoing Ronnie Whelan uh, <laughs> carousel, but it turns out Jack Charlton is as sick of it as, as you probably are at this stage, because uh, he has a one-hour fitness test with Morris Setters, and then at midnight, Ronnie Whelan confronts Jack Charlton before the game in the hotel and um, demands, or not so much demands, or queries very forcefully why he isn't in the team. The team's been named to the players. I would love to have been a fly on the wall for that conversation between two fair... I mean, Ronnie would be a fairly headstrong guy even now. He, he has a friendly tone to his voice in that it makes him sound not too aggressive, whereas Jack's is full-on aggro. Uh, I'm sure Jack just explained to him if he didn't want to play someone he didn't like, he would. But he would all that kind of stuff. Pretty much, well, the way Jack tells it, he explained to Ronnie um, that he didn't feel he was fit. He wasn't going to select someone for a, such an important game if he wasn't sure he was going to make it through the 90 or most of the way through the 90. And Ronnie Whelan just stared at him and walked away. But it does seem as though Whelan basically talked himself out of the, out of the game by constantly going to the press. And Jack Charlton blew his top with the Irish press the day before. He said, we'll tell Ronnie Whelan when he's fit. He won't tell us. Another thing ahead of the game, Irish fans are beginning to notice that they've paid £50 for tickets that are going for £9 locally. And uh, that's a story that might well have legs. But there are fifteen to 20,000 Irish fans in La Favorita for this kickoff. It's a very hot day. It's four o'clock kickoff Irish time. There's also a thousand Egyptian sailors at the game who just happen to be in Sicily. And the camera, the director cuts them a lot and it looks like a, a Richard Gere convention. It's really, it's really <laughs> strange. Um, but yes, yeah, vocal support for both teams and unchanged Irish team. Um, I think a lot of people were hoping for a bit more creativity or maybe for Niall Quinn to come in for Tony Cascarino or maybe for the... the Ronnie Whelan at right back. Ron, yeah, I think, we, I think we've exhausted the Ronnie Whelan and Chris Hutton discourse, but there was also calls for David Kelly to come in for John Aldridge, but it's exactly the same team that started against England, and it's exactly the same pattern of play. Uh, early on, both sides are hitting, are hitting long. Egypt are trying to release Hassan, 
they obviously really backing his pace against the Irish centre-halves. Um, three minutes in, Mick McCarthy has the first shot of the game. It's a 30-yarder that goes well over. I think Mick McCarthy would score two goals for them. Uh, never really in danger of, of supplementing that. Uh, Ireland obviously have identified Hassan as the danger man. He's being pressed every time he gets the ball. But Egypt aren't really creating anything in the early stages. Ireland look very nervous. They're getting good possession in the Egyptian in the Egyptian third of the field, but they're not really threatening to play through. And um, McGrath's really the only one who's getting on the ball and doing anything out of the ordinary with it, but he's very deep, obviously, and it's, it's not really happening. It's not a sterile op- opening 15 minutes at all, which surprised me. You know, Ireland are putting the ball in dangerous positions, but they're not turning defenders the way they normally do. Cascarino is very clumsy up front. They're not really getting up to support him, which is the whole crux of Charlton's game plan is basically that the, the target man competes for the ball, whether he wins it or not. And then, you know, there's bodies around him when it breaks down. Uh, that's not happening. Houghton is drifting in field. Townsend and McGrath are going right. Sheedy is drifting in field. There's lot, not a lot of width and Morris and Staunton, the fullbacks aren't offering it. But that said, Ireland are really piling on pressure. It's It has the feel of one of those games where Ireland create a lot of pressure in, in the opponent's box, a few half chances, and then the kind of the dam breaks and there's a goal. And after half an hour, there's possibly the best chance of the first half. Um, there's a long ball from Steve Staunton. It's chested down by Aldridge to Sheedy. Sheedy barges between two defenders and hits the deck. And it does look at first glance like a penalty. On replay, I don't think there's a huge amount of contact. I think he's going down before, before such contact as there is happens. And then the game just starts going ragged again. The Egyptians are very happy with that, obviously. They're, they're, they've set out to frustrate Ireland. Um, but one thing I think people miss about this game in, in kind of the, the stereotypes or the received wisdom around the kind of game it was, Egypt always looked like they're capable of putting a counter-attack together. They always look like they can hurt Ireland through the middle if they want to. And when they get the ball, they do try and pass it pretty quickly. Um, and they do try and release Hassan. As I said, that's what people miss is that Ireland can't really just completely go for broke and start pushing everyone forward because Egypt, always, although they don't have really any chances in the first half, they always look like they're capable of creating something. And Charlton would have known that about them from his, his homework. Um, Egypt actually get their best chance of the half about 10 minutes before the break, and it's a really scary moment. Uh, McCarthy goes to head away a long ball and he heads it against Hossam. And now it's a foot race between McCarthy and Hossam, and there's only going to be one winner, but Moran comes across hey, on the slide. Oh, McCarthy. Exactly. <laughs> um, and we know that Hossam had targeted him specifically for pace before the game, but Moran's positional sense uh, comes good and he slides it away at the last minute for a corner, but Hassan was very nearly in one-on-one with, with Packy Bonner. Just about four minutes before half time, the last action of the first half is, or the last significant action is kind of one of the most significant of the game. Um, Houghton fires over a corner. Shubier, who's played really well, he fumbles it. I think Moran fouled him looking back at it, but the referee doesn't whistle. It's headed back into the box by Sheedy. Cascarino takes it on the chest about 10 yards out and volleys it, but it's straight at the goalkeeper. Uh, I think he should probably score from that position, but he's very, very low on confidence. It's fair to say Cascarino, that probably wouldn't have been his uh, speciality either, sort of contorting his body to take a quick touch and a quick volley. Um, he very rarely did things 
you know, with all that, with all that much grace. Um, so he, he certainly, like, in that situation, I thought he was a little bit unlucky, actually. I thought he, he did well and he just tried to drive it as much as he could. A lot of the chances, as you kind of mentioned there, there's a quote that comes sort of post-match about the attack lacking wit as well as wit. So wit, W-I-T and W-I-T-D-T-H. So I think that that's very, very evident right throughout the game. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's very evident in the, in the first half. Um, at half time, the RTE studio is... I say quietly apoplectic. I mean, both Giles and Dunphy are fairly confident that Ireland are going to find the break tr- breakthrough, um, but they're also absolutely damning about the type of football Ireland have played. Did Dunphy and Giles have a suggestion in terms of, because more often than not, you hear a player, an Andy Reid, if you will, uh, of who should be brought in to, to salvage this or to, to fix the football we play. They weren't calling for Ronnie Whelan, were they? Yeah, Ronnie Whelan isn't actually an option because he's he's talked himself out of the out of the squad entirely. He's not even on the bench. Ireland's bench consists of David O'Leary, Chris Hewton, Niall Quinn, Alan McLaughlin, and Jerry Payton. There's not really anyone there who's who's a you know a, a ball player who's going to change the game in the middle of the field. So Ireland are pretty stuck with what they have. After 48 minutes, Staunton very deftly flicks a high ball to Houghton out in the left, I'm not sure what Houghton's doing on the left, but he hooks it into the box. Sheedy pulls it down skillfully, and then he throws himself into a flying half volley that's, again, straight at Shubir. I suppose fans are, are beginning to, to think things might be on the up. The ole oles are beginning to ring around the ground um, quite loudly. Not a, not a peep to be heard from those Egyptian sailors, I'd say. Actually, Ireland get a, get a bit of a let-off after 51 minutes, because... Chris Morris goes way over the ball on Tolba, gets booked for it. For my money, it's a straight red, even by 1990 standards. It's an appalling tackle. It's an absolutely outrageous tackle. Miles over, straight into the shin, stud showing. Ireland are, well, I, I'm sure there were wits back home who were saying that Ireland would have been better off if they had. If Morris had been sent off uh, a little bit harsh, he's got a lot of energy and, you know, a lot. He's a very willing player, but he's, he's not really contributing anything in, in the attacking third. Um, Ireland are playing very uncharted-like football at this stage of the game. They're kind of tapping the ball around a lot. Uh, Cascarino isn't in position to meet crosses when the crosses do come in. And it's really beginning to just drift away. You get the sense it's just drifting away from Ireland. That goal might not come. After 64 minutes, Aldridge is hauled off. Um, another really barren, unconvincing display for the national team for Aldridge. He's replaced again, though, by Alan McLaughlin. Rather than, I suppose the only other option would be send on Niall Quinn and have two big men up front. You say that, though. We talked about Ireland's attacking options before this and that they have six players. So you're Aldridge, Cascarino, Quinn, Staples and Bernie Slade and John Byrne and David Kelly. So in a game like this... And we'll come on to some of the criticism Jack gets later, but I mean, there's six strikers there and, and we're, we're bringing on McLaughlin at, at this late stage. Um, you wonder what were those, what were the rest of our strikers brought in, brought along for then? Because it, if not for use in this kind of game. Absolutely. And in fact, Quinn is the only striker on the bench. And um, now Alan McLaughlin is a noted goal scorer from kind of an att- attacking midfield positions, but I don't remember him contributing to the game or even touching the ball in the 36 minutes that he's, or in the 26 minutes he's on the field. 
Cascarino and Aldridge have both been terrible, but you can only take one of them off, really. In these days, there were only two substitutions, and obviously Jack Charlton feels he needs another one, another one up his sleeve. Um, after 70 minutes, there's a long ball from McCarthy. Cascarino wins one for a change, or wins one and gets good possession afterwards. It's picked up by Sheedy. He controls the ball with his right foot. He slides in Houghton with his left foot. Houghton is through from a slightly wide position, one-on-one with the goalkeeper. He tries to go high to the near post instead of across the keeper. And Chauvayer saves very well. Probably Ireland's best chance of the, of the match. You probably would have backed Houghton to take it. Um, very well created, kind of classic Ireland, getting it up to the big man and then playing a bit from there. And I would say Houghton had a shot and didn't put it across the goalkeeper? <laughs> His catchphrase. I don't know what you guys think, but I think that's a bit of a sitter for Ahab. Yeah, it's pretty bad. It, it probably, in the grand scheme of things, he's forgiven, as we know, and as was reminded this week on social media, who put the ball in the English net, <laughs> cut to a very sullen uh, Ray Houghton sitting in the back of a car, haven't listened to that all day. One more time, boys, right? Who put the ball in the English net? Sake, I did. <laughs> to, to be fair, Egypt, I think, deserve a lot of credit because I, I look at some of the reporting post-match and some of the kind of sniping, I suppose from the Irish press, who, who it is just a little bit sort of uh, Sarah Grapes, but there's a lot of um, a lot of sanctimonious carry-on. It, it reminds me of, you ever see that Spider-Man meme online of the two Spider-Men <laughs> at each other? I mean, that's a little bit of what's going on here with the Irish sort of having to try and take a game to another team and being unable to imagine England in the previous game if you if you just copy and paste the report that's probably what the Irish reporters have done really uh, for this match report pretty much um, but as you say the, the Egyptians are kind of very very stung by the criticism of their approach to this game and you know they say not unreasonably as far as we're concerned or you know as far as our, our media is concerned uh, we've always considered Ireland or in recent years, a much stronger side than Egypt. Um, we're not going to go out and you know try to batter them. We're going to tailor our game to the to the opposition and try and uh, manage it and and control it and frustrate Ireland, which they have every right to do. Um, with 15 minutes to play, Staunton very nearly makes the breakthrough. Uh, he drives a shot kind of diagonally across the goalkeeper, just wide from about 20 yards, and then there's a very sickening collision between Ramsey and Townsend. Townsend gets absolutely absolutely smashed in the face. Um, I, no malice in it, but he's kind of, he's pumping blood on the, on the pitch. Uh, he stays on remarkably. And Egypt are now just flagrantly wasting time, I suppose. That's where some of the post-match frustration comes from. There's a kind of final throw of the dice when Quinn comes on for Cascarino after 84 minutes, which is kind of a a real lack of imagination. The last chance of the game, it's actually the only one I remember from the game from watching it. Staunton chests one down, good deal, a good way out, um, and kind of Gary owns it straight up into the air. I'm not sure if it's a cross or a shot, but Shubayer just kind of calmly uh, tips it over the bar. It is going it is going in, and I remember that seeming like a, a serious chance at the time. But that's it. Ireland don't break e- Egypt down. They don't ever really look like breaking Egypt down. And the Egyptian players embrace for, I think, a very well-merited point. Nil-nil. Can I just say, though, it's, it, my memory of this game was that it was the worst game in football I'd ever seen. Having watched it back 
I don't think it was quite that bad. I know someone who'll disagree vehemently with that, as Eamon Dunphy, certainly 1990 Eamon Dunphy. I mean, this is uh, Dunphy's sort of supervillain origin story, really, when you, when you look back. This is the, the I, th- I think he gets a, a taste of the big time that comes with sort of loud, proud criticism. And he, he builds a career, really, on that to an extent. Is, is this probably some of his most legitimate criticism that's irked somebody? Well, I think there's certain Charlton after the game says if we'd won two or three nil, no one would be complaining. And it's like, yeah, because you would have won two or three nil, but you didn't. Um, and Char- I think this is kind of where Dunphy's criticism, people begin to see uh, what it's rooted in, because this is exactly what he's been lamenting over the past couple of years. And he hasn't been entirely negative about the Charlton revolution at all. He's just been saying, you know, it's, it's a crude form of football and when you have to try and force the pace of a game, when you have to start carving out your own chances, it doesn't fit the bill. It's, it's not designed for that kind of game. Um, and I think there is a huge amount of kind of legitimate frustration in how he reacts, even though his reaction itself becomes notorious way beyond, way out of proportion to what actually happened. But uh, yeah, I think... I, there definitely is something in in his criticism, but I would say, I think everyone who knew football knew that this was how Ireland played, and it's the old line from a film of this rough of roughly this period. If you want a different answer, ask a different girl. Ireland were the girl they were. <laughs> well, just just to use as you mentioned, Dunphy there. I mean, when you're saying anyone who knows about football, I think this is maybe he's he's adding the backstory. But when asked about this more recently very very emotional interview where he's essentially just bawling his eyes out and trying to talk over and and maybe it's out of maybe this further context to it was a bit like why is he crying so hard but he basically says that he knew like given he grew up with sort of hatred of football in this country it really got to him to see on a world stage where everyone's watching having gotten the draw with England to play like that and he felt that, you know that it was detrimental to the game here which is nonsense but that was a legitimate reaction, well, he claims back then. And that's why I feel, when I say the origin of the sort of supervillain, I, I genuinely think this is legitimate criticism, it's fair criticism, and I think it, he probably means it. And I'm not quite sure you could say that about him in the subsequent years each time. What do you reckon, Dave? Yeah, I can see why Dunphy was quite offended by the performance, particularly given his... I guess his background as a as a footballer coming out of Ireland and how how um, passionate he was about the game, but uh, uh, I'd agree with Turlock that I think that the football wasn't quite as bad as maybe it's made out to be. I think there were portions of the England game that were no better than the last kind of twenty minutes of that Egypt game. Hmm. And also, just to note um, some of Dumpy's <laughs> specific criticism, like these these are quotes from him during the game. I think this is half time. We're rubbish. Egypt are rubbish. We should be beating them 6-0. That's rubbish. That's, you know, no, no one at that World Cup was going to beat Egypt 6-0. No one at that World Cup was going to beat anyone 6-0. If, if we look, won 6-0 about twice ever. <laughs> if we look to the sort of reaction this causes then, because we've got we've to stop talking about this game at, the, at some point. I mean, ultimately, this leads to a bit of a fallout. Dumphy... Uh, ends up over in Italy. He's trying to ask Jack a question in the press conference. Jack refuses to to answer because he essentially 
<laughs> he was, when asked about why he didn't answer, he basically said, I don't like him. <laughs> I don't have to answer questions to people I don't did like. Did an old king on it. There really is. Funny, we just talked to Tony O'Donoghue a while ago on this. Like, It's probably a fair reaction when you come in for criticism to the manager. They don't really have to sit there and take it. A lot of people feel it's their job to do that. I think they can react whichever way they want, but then they're going to have to deal with the ire of the press about how they react. So it's a vicious circle. But not only that, I suppose, you have RTE playing back the footage in that the idea is out there that Dunphy said he's ashamed to be Irish, which to be fair, he didn't. He may have said some amount of rubbish, but he didn't say that. And they play it back with the sort of uh, view of exonerating Eamon. <laughs> he's also asked at one point about it, there's a, a, there's a clip you can find online in the documentary and he, he talks about like I'm a writer it's you know a journalist a best-selling journalist in the New York Times I'll have you know and he kind of just throws that out there and smiles and you're like this is what I mean by the art he is loving this he's plugging his book while he's at this you know what I mean so all of this leads to uh, to, to yeah build the character of Aim Dumpy today I didn't uh, stop him sitting and listen to the questions that were being asked I just wouldn't answer a question from him. Can you comment why that is so? Well, I don't like him. And I don't have to work with people I don't like. I, I've been a journalist for 12 years. I've written best-selling book. No, no. <laughs> New York Times best-selling book. I think he's a bit that little man. Well, let's move on to Spain, South Korea. We've talked about this Spain team. I've sort of mainly talked about them being relatively forgettable in sort of comparison to what the Spanish clubs were achieving around that time or what they kind of went on to achieve shortly after. The one thing we probably should mention about this team and about Madrid's sort of homegrown players of this time, how essential they were to Madrid in the 1980s when they, they dominated Spain. They never won a European Cup, but they, they did win a couple of European trophies. Uh, De Stefano brought through a pretty interesting bunch of players they've been dominating in Castilla there's probably comparisons you can make to that uh, Manchester United team when you look at the, the young players coming through and, and the job they do those players were the captain uh, Emilio Bertrugueno uh, Manuel Sanchez Rafael Martin Vasquez uh, Michel and also Miguel Pardesa and uh, each of those feature in the squad here although I don't think I'll get on the pitch until a game a bit further down the line uh, Bertrugueno was known as El Butre which is the vulture, and he's, he's the real front man of the lot of them. He's the captain of the national team, and it's quite visible in how they were also referred to. The, the other four were known as uh, El Quinta de la Butre, which is the vulture's cohorts, which is a bit annoying considering your nickname is about like being someone else's mate and he has a cool nickname. I'd be pretty pissed off at that. They're an aggressive attacking side. They're somewhat dirty, and they're sort of pre-Galactico. I mean, everyone remembers Madrid as as the Galacticos, but this is probably the lesser remembered part of them. And it's probably summed up nicely by Michel in this game and probably in general. A lot of people will probably remember Michel as the guy who performed what I can probably only describe as a sort of backhanded and non-consensual reach-around nutsack squeeze to Carlos Valderrama uh, a few years later, I think around 92, in a La Liga match between Real Madrid and, and Real Valladolid. A pretty bad one. There's no defending it. <laughs> There's no point in, in talking about it too much more. We'll talk about the good side of Michel in this game because he's some man for the goals. He, he puts on quite a show. He scores the first one. Villaroya crosses from deep on the left, finds him coming inside from the right, and he connects with a beautiful volley into the bottom corner. Following this, then, we get two absolutely glorious free kicks and probably amongst the best goals of the tournament. Firstly, the Koreans equalise through Huang Bo Kwan 
the ball sort of rolled to him by another player. He smashes it at goal. And there's, there's four men on the wall, one player deciding to absolutely sprint directly at him to close him down. And it's like, it nearly looks like something from um, Space Jam or something like that, in that it circumvents the wall perfectly around it and then swerves back towards the near post again, almost as if it had a magnetic field away from the wall kind of thing. But it absolutely flies in, absolute belter just before half time, and it's 1 1. Uh, Michelle, not to be shown up, free kick, a similar position, curls one over the Korean wall and into the top corner in the 60th minute. Some criticism came the Koreans' way in the press for not being tall enough in the wall, which, again, it reminds me of sort of Gordon Strachan's recent criticism of Scottish genetics. And Michelle then finishes the Koreans off. A uh, cross comes in from the right. It's not really dealt with. Michelle picks it up sort of inside the box to the left. He dummies the shot left, dummies the shot right, leaving two Koreans behind him, and then drives it low for a 3-1 victory for Spain. The Koreans now need a, a five-goal swing in their final game. And even with that, it, it won't guarantee them qualification. So, yeah, they're up shit creek, really, unfortunately. Let's talk about the other game in... Or let's talk about the last game of the day, then. And uh, some more impressive goals in this one. Belgium versus Uruguay. Dave, you're going to have a look at this one. Yeah, 1-3-1 one, one to another 3-1. Fairly evenly balanced. Belgium 2-0 win against South Korea. Uruguay and drawn with Spain. Maybe Uruguay would have taken a bit more confidence into the game than Belgium would, considering uh, the opposition that they face. Anybody who's watched Belgium over the last few years might kind of see a few similarities in terms of the, the way Belgium approached this game. Well, maybe unlike what they are now, they're very much Belgium were a team built around Enzo, Enzo Schiefel. And he was one of the three players who scored, scored for Belgium within the first 46 minutes or so. Uh, Kleister's opened the scoring early on with a decent shot. Schifo made it 2-0 with another decent uh, effort from range and then uh, Kuhlman's made it 3-0 just early in the second half. Uh, Uruguay pulled a goal back. Again, they're, they're all decent good goals in this game. Um, they pulled one back late on. You know, Very much it was a case that, that Belgium had nailed on their place in the second round or in, in the knockout phase. It's an outrageous goal from Schifo as well. It really is. Like You, you forget again with the amount of talent that's in this and you you kind of go back looking through some of the players, like we mentioned, Lothar Mateus, and I know Schifo is kind of one that he's probably the number one, isn't he, in Belgium's history? And you can see why with mm. spectacular goals like that, that people are going to absolutely swallow up in a World Cup. It's, it's what yes, I think De Bruyne might be maybe challenging him now and uh, maybe Luke Nillis over the years, but Schifo is probably the, the big name in Belgium. Can I just say as well, this Shifo goal is the one that was immortalised later by Alan Partridge with the commentary, shit, he must have a foot like a traction engine. <laughs> it's this goal. <laughs> also, Belgium's first goal was by uh, Leo Kleisters, who's uh, Kim Kleister's father. He's sadly no longer with us. Well, let's check in with the, uh, I mean, is there much point in checking in with the Irish camp? It's all a war zone right now. Everyone hates Eamon Dunphy. They're pinning pictures of him up in the in the dressing room and uh, with fake quotes <laughs> that he never said and using that to inspire them. We might just come back to that tomorrow because um, the recriminations, I promise you, will, will rumble on. Um, but I do have a good story from, from uh, elsewhere in Ireland, um, which is in the Sunday world. And apparently locals are very concerned about black mass rituals that may be taking place at, at an old stone tower in Kilross near Valley Buffet. Um, the guards have had reports of 30 people gathering on the hill late at night, mostly with Northern Ireland reg cars, um, fires being burnt. One local heard the bleating of sheep, which he thought signalled a blood, 
blood ritual as opposed to a county that's full of sheep. Um, <laughs> but the guards, there's a great quote from the guards. I particularly want to draw attention to the use of the phrase, I hear, here. So the guards say, the story going round is that something big was to happen on the 13th, which I hear is the devil's birthday. Um, but nothing apparently happened. Um, whatever, whatever arcane and dreadful rituals are being carried on, they didn't work because Ben Harps only finished fourth in the, in the first division the following season. Yeah, it doesn't work. It's only magical butterflies. Nothing else, nothing else flies over here. We'll leave that one there for the time being. We've got another couple of games tomorrow. Games going off simultaneously, I think, for the first time in this tournament. Argentina versus Romania and Cameroon versus the USSR. When I was growing up, you know, they pissed on soccer. It was, they hated it. You know, official Ireland hated soccer. And now the whole country was watching. And then we give this performance against Egypt. And he made a ball of it. I thought, and I was very, very angry at that. Sorry. <laughs>